Buenas noches, damas y caballeros. Mucho gusto. <laughs> this is the Spanish language meeting, isn't it? <laughs> My name is Paul Martin. I'm a young alcoholic in an old container. Through the grace of God and the 12 steps in the AA program, I haven't had a drink or a pill or an impure thought since August 15, 1947. <laughs> That's the good news. Bad news is this is how you look after you don't drink for 53 years. I want to thank Susan for inviting me and Joe and Clara for taking me around. I've enjoyed being here. I learned that Joe and Clara met in a travel agency. She was looking for the last resort. <laughs> Got some late news for you. Indiana University just hired Mike Tyson to replace Bobby Knight. <laughs> That isn't really true, but, you know, seriously, my, uh, Tyson does take Zoloft for his anger issues. I did hear about the Valium diet. You take four Valiums for breakfast and the food falls out of your mouth the rest of the day. <laughs> I feel like Elizabeth Taylor's next husband. I know it's expected of me, but I can't figure out how to make it interesting. <laughs> For years, I was worried about dying young, and now it's too late. <laughs> a while back, I spent the night in one of those motels with a mirror on the ceiling. And I woke up in the morning, and I looked up, and I thought I was being attacked by a giant prune. <laughs> I'm starting to develop alcoholic, alcoholic Alzheimer's. That's where you forget everything but the resentments. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of you were here Thursday night when Steve talked, and Steve talked about this really old lady that he ended up with one time. How old was she, Steve? She was old. <laughs> <clears throat> she was so old that when he told her to act her age, she died. <laughs> Alcoholism is a disease, and AA is the answer. And I've been in AA, as you know, a long time. I've suffered a lot. <clears throat> I'm a Cubs fan and a Bears fan. <laughs> Cubs' magic number this year is 911. <laughs> Bears had a place kicker that they fired. He was missing the field goals, and he was so depressed he tried to shoot himself in the head. And the bullet went wide and to the right. <laughs> I was fortunate during the time I've been sober to be a guest in Bill Wilson's home on several occasions and went to a couple of meetings and had dinner with him when he was talking somewhere around that area. And that was a great privilege. I'm privileged to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I travel a lot in my work. I don't travel so much anymore because I can't remember where I am when I get there. <laughs> but I ended up writing for a living when I started it when I was kind of old. I did a lot of other things before that. But a few years ago, I was in the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Ecuador, where Darwin got the idea for the theory of evolution from the giant tortoises and the finches. And they varied from island to island. The giant tortoises get to be 500 and 600 pounds. And I learned that during mating season, the male tortoises get so excited, they try to mate with large rocks. It's pretty much like your average AA picnic. <laughs> But I think we're uniquely fortunate that Bill Wilson was one of our co-founders. Dr. Bob, of course, was a proctologist, which I think was very fitting also. But Bill was a genius, many people think, and I would concur with that, because the big book was pretty much written by him, and the 12 steps came through him in a, in a half hour period. And I think we're so fortunate that this man was there when this started, when he got that message from Ebby 
1934. And then he carried the message to Dr. Bob in the spring of 1935. And I think it's useful for me to remember that what they did at that time, Abby took Bill, the 12 steps were not written in those years, but Abby took Bill through the equivalent of the first eight steps of that program in the first few days he was sober in Towns Hospital. And Bill did the same thing with Dr. Bob in Akron in the spring of 1935. And Bob did that with Earl Treat in 1939, who started AA in Chicago. I have never seen anybody get in trouble from working the 12 steps too soon. Thank you. If things get dull, I'll just repeat that. I have seen many, many people get in trouble from working them too late or not at all. The, the answer for the alcoholic in my experience, and I've worked with a lot of alcoholics, we're supposed to try to help people with no thought of reward and no thank you, and working with alcoholics gives you ample experience with that. <laughs> but I have seen an awful lot of alcoholics at many stages of sobriety, five years, 10 years, 20 years, deeply depressed, and all they needed to do was work and rework the 12 steps. Going to meetings and not drinking do not treat my alcoholism. Working the 12 steps treats my alcoholism. If all I do is go to meetings and not drink, eventually I suffer from untreated alcoholism. And that comes out as depression, anxiety, fear, apathy, boredom. I don't need Prozac, I need the AA program. I need the answers that were there all the time. And that's the thing that I try to remember. I'm 78 years old, which is a lot older than I intended to be. <clears throat> I have a great future, but it's all behind me. <laughs> However, what I have learned in AA is that everything in the big book is true. In the 1950s, I worked on construction out of the, in the Arctic, Greenland, Iceland, Alaska. I used to read the big book every day. When I drank, people said, if you sobered up, you'd, you're a smart young fellow, you'd go far. In 1952, I found myself in northern Greenland, which was a lot farther than I had intended to go. <laughs> but I sobered up. I had done some boxing, and that didn't work out very well. I had my nose broken in three places, Georgia, Illinois, and California. <laughs> and professional wrestling had gotten popular right after the war around Chicago, and I lifted weights. The wrestlers were a lot smaller then, and they were crazy, but not as crazy as they are today. And I spent a few years doing that, not making any money, and I ended up in Greenland, Iceland, and Alaska. And I used to read the big book every day. They were building an Air Force base in Thule, Greenland, which is 850 miles from the pole. I worked in Iceland in 1955. 1956 and 7, I worked in Point Barrow, Alaska. Some of the time we had meetings, some of the time we didn't. We had one man in the group up in Point Barrow, Nick, whose father was Jewish and whose mother was Eskimo. Nick always used to say that he was AA's only Juskimo, and as far as I know, that's correct. <laughs> but I, I read the big book many, many times. And I go back and read it from time to time now, not as often as I should. When the 12 and 12 came out in 53, I used to read a chapter a day. But I've written hundreds of articles for many magazines. I've written a book, and I've written some other stuff. I could not write with... 53 years of sobriety in that background, I could not write anything that good today about AA, even with the years I have it. It's, it's very inspired, it's tremendous, and it's very specific. It says, do these things. You know, it does, don't talk about your feelings or your relationships. Do this stuff and get better. And if you don't do this stuff, you don't get better. I mean, that's very simple. <laughs> Took me a while to figure that out. <clears throat> I'm really not as smart as I look. But in the spring of 1948, sober less than a year, I heard Paul Stanley talk in Chicago, and he was the number five AA. And in his talk, Stanley said over and over and over that AA is of itself sufficient. And I didn't really believe that at that time. I believe it today. I think that AA is of itself sufficient. We had a man, we, we work with a lot of people from around the country who 
come to our group, we have a working step group, and I want to specify working. It's not a philosophizing group. It's not a study group. It's not a reading group. We take one step every night, every week, 1 to 12, then we go back to 1 and we do it all over. And we have groups on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday morning. And the thrust of the group is that all of us keep working these steps. Where I grew up in AA in Oak Park, Illinois, all I heard was that you did the first nine steps once, and then you do 10, 11, and 12. And I suffered from that unfortunate misconception until I was sober 16 years. 1963, I ran into a psychologist at the University of Illinois, Dr. Hobart Maurer. And Hobart had been a staunch Freudian until he found out nobody got better from Freudian analysis. <laughs> and he started looking in other places. And he studied the work of Harry Stack Sullivan and some other people. And they said, you break down because you have lived dishonestly, selfishly, secretly, irresponsibly. I've done an awful lot of that since I've been sober. And I guarantee you it doesn't work very well. But what I discovered when I began doing those fourth and fifth steps over again in 1963, I was better, but the people I worked with, people who had not been able to stay sober, now stayed sober. And people who were sober 15, 20 years but had depression, when they did a number of fifth steps and made amends, they felt good. The symptoms of untreated alcoholism went away. So. Working the 12 steps treats my alcoholism. Going to meetings, going to conferences, going to barbecues do not treat my alcoholism. Working the steps treats my alcoholism wherever I am in sobriety. I work out in the gym three times a week. You could tell this from my superb physique. <laughs> but <laughs> working in the gym keeps me in better physical condition. I work the steps and I pray and meditate and that keeps me in better spiritual and emotional and, and mental condition. We were talking at dinner about mantras for meditation. We figured the ideal mantra for the alcoholic is, me, 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 me. <laughs> but I didn't agree with Paul Stanley in 1960, 1948 when I heard him. I agree with that today. AA is of itself sufficient. We've had a lot of therapies come bouncing through AA because of the treatment industry which will help alcoholics for money. I think the key, if I'm going to work with somebody and help that person, I have to do it for free. Because if I do it for free, there is a spiritual transaction that takes place, and we're both better off. And if I get money, that cancels out the good. And the AA program is about change. You probably heard about the Zen master who was in New York a while back, and he ordered a hot dog from a vendor and the vendor gave him the hot dog, and he gave the vendor a $20 bill who put it in his pocket. And the Zen master said, what about, what about my change? And the vendor said, change must come from within. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a while back, a man died, and he went to heaven, and St. Peter was showing him around. And they came to a big building, and St. Peter said, that's the clock building. Man said, I didn't know you had clocks in heaven. And St. Peter said, absolutely. Every time somebody is born, he gets a clock. And whenever he tells a lie, the clock jumps ahead one minute. Man said, have you got a clock for Bill Clinton? St. Peter said, sure, I use it as a ceiling fan in my bedroom. probably heard about the man, the alcoholic, who was so many nuthouses that every time he heard an ambulance bell, he used to get his pajamas and go sit on the front porch. <laughs> but I, uh, I had a man call me about 10 years ago. He was sober 22 years. He lived in Janesville, Wisconsin, and he was an alcoholism counselor. He had been cutting the bread one day in his kitchen, and he thought seriously about sticking the knife in his stomach and killing himself. And he thought that might be a bad sign. So he gave me a call. I talked to him about 10 years before one time. So I said, well, come down to our meeting, which was on Wednesday night. And he drove down from Janesville, which is a two-hour drive. He had done a fourth and fifth step 22 years before when he came out of treatment. He had never done much with the men's. So we started him right out. We don't think that anybody is sober too short a time to work the steps. 
and we showed him how to do an inventory and helped him write a fourth step and then we helped him list his eighth step and he came back to our meeting from Janesville which is a four-hour round trip for about two years and then came periodically but very quickly this man who was suicidal lost all these symptoms of untreated alcoholism we had a man come up from Midland Texas two months ago who's sober 15 years 50 years old severely depressed and anxious and angry and he did a deal on the weekend where we swapped fifth, he swapped fifth steps with a number of different people in our group we believe in our group that men should take fifth steps with men and women should take fifth steps with women we find that working on that basis there is less tendency to generate new material that requires additional fourth and fifth steps <clears throat> And he did nine-fifth steps. He went home and he started to make amends. And we talked to him regularly, and he's fine. He's not depressed, not fearful, not anxious. And if he had gone to a psychiatrist, he would have ended up on Prozac because his problems were untreated alcoholism and a failure to use the tools that we have here that change our lives if we only use them. If I go to a gym three times a week, and exercise, I'm going to be in good shape. If, on the other hand, I just read about the step, about the exercises and talk about them and think about them, nothing is going to happen. And it's the same way with the 12 steps. If all I do is study them and talk about them and don't work them, I'm not going to experience what they have. The steps, in my experience, that create the most dramatic changes are 4 and 5 and 8 and 9. Over and over and over, I've seen people go from total depression to being in pretty good shape pretty quickly simply, simply by doing these things. I can't live on the food I ate 20 years ago or the water I drank 10 years ago or the, food or the air I breathed six months ago. I have to continue to do these things. And no better can I live on the work I did in the program many years ago. I have to continue to do this kind of work. And that's the thrust of the group I belong to, because if I didn't go and get together with those people regularly, I would not remember what I have to do. Something came up in the treatment industry called relapse prevention. Did you ever hear about that? <clears throat> you have all kinds of workshops, and you have study groups, and they talk about preventing relapse. Well, in how it works, it tells us how to prevent relapse. We used to have slips in AA. Now we have relapses. A relapse is a slip that has a, to, happens to an alcoholic who has insurance that will pay for some treatment. <laughs> but in our experience, if anybody will work the steps, he's going to stay sober. And as Steve said the other night, I did listen to your talk, Steve. It says in the 12 and 12, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, that if practiced as a way of life will expel the obsession to drink, and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And that's true. That's what happens. Healing means to make whole, that we function as a sane, useful human being. And the steps will help me do it. I can't do it alone. I can't do it just with God in me, and I can't do it just with the people in me. I didn't believe in anything when I came to AA. I come from a long line of Lutheran ministers, and in spite of that fact, I believe in God today. <coughs> I'm a... My, <laughs> The way I was taught said, if you don't believe this way, you're going to be part of an eternal marshmallow roast and you're going to be one of the marshmallows. And I said, how come? And they said, that's because God loves you. <laughs> I figured I could live better with less cosmic affection, so I tried atheism. I was kind of a cowardly agnostic because I'd always pray when I got in trouble. <clears throat> but I came to AA and they said, God is, you understand him, and that's what I've attempted to do. My ancestry is German. The problem with that is every time you have two beers, you want to cross somebody's border. <laughs> but relapse prevention, we prevent relapses by working the steps at any stage of sobriety. Working 1 through 9 over and over is very different from working 10, 11, and 12. I believe that was the idea for the first 16 years I was sober. That was totally wrong. I've heard disagreements with people who say that doing 10, 11, and 12 is the same as doing 4 and 5 over, and that's not true. The only person who would say that is the person who has never tried doing 4 and 5 over. 
Incidentally, Steve's good friend Tom over here, I was thinking about Steve and his old girl there at that time. <clears throat> Tom used to say the only thing an old lady could do for him was bring him a message from a young one. <laughs> activity is different from action. <clears throat> the activity of working the 12 steps is very different from the action of being involved in meetings and those kinds of things. Activity is kind of fun and it'll keep me going for a while. The action of working the steps will ensure my health and continuing health. The program is, is working the 12 steps. It's not, we don't do much fellowship in our group. We don't go bowling or play softball or have picnics or any of those things. We work and rework the steps and when a new person comes in there, we jump on that person so he'll get started right away. We try to do what they did when Bill was worked with by Ebby, and then Bill worked with Dr. Bob. How long before you make amends? Well, Dr. Bob made amends right after he had that slip. I was over in Bill's house in the spring of 1951. I was wrestling at Rainbow Arena in Chicago. On Wednesday night, the shows went all over the uh, West Coast and East Coast, and I learned that Lois was a wrestling fan, which kind of surprised me, because she kept asking me if wrestling was fixed. And I kept trying to figure out how to answer her without actually lying and still not telling her the truth. And I never did figure that out. <laughs> One of the things that I think we have to remember is this whole business of professionalism. Because the AA message is a message from one amateur to another amateur. Vincent Dole was a non-alcoholic uh, uh, trustee who retired in about 1972. And in his retirement talk, Dole said that my concern for the future of AA is that its principle of personal service may be eroded by money and professionalism. And I think that was a very, very valid concern because I think that's happened and I think it's changed AA in some unfortunate ways. If we did not have the big book, it would have gotten lost a long time ago because we can go back to the book and see what they were doing when they, when they started. Because I think the farther we go in time from a spiritual movement and the experience of the founders, the farther we get from what they were actually doing. And they weren't talking about feelings. They were talking about honesty and responsible behavior. I didn't start out to be an alcoholic. I grew up in a little town down in South Georgia, about 50 miles from the Okefenokee Swamp. It was so dull that if you took LSD, you'd have had visions of Lawrence Welk. <laughs> But I got down there when I was 12 years old. My uh, father was a Lutheran minister who was a fundraiser, and he was also a drunk. He was a great moneymaker. I was never poor till I started supporting myself. <clears throat> but he was a boozer. We lived in Oak Park, which was right near Chicago. And I have an older sister and a younger brother. And my mother finally became fearful for her life, and she wanted to get a divorce or separation in 1934 when I was 12. And my father went down to South Georgia where he had a sister. And that fall came back and picked me up from school coming home one afternoon and drove me down there nonstop and entered me in school down there. And my mother came back and didn't get custody. And I spent the next seven years in Georgia. And it changed my life. It was very, very confusing. These were just great people down there. I look back on them with great fondness because they were very, very helpful to me and surviving in a life I didn't quite understand. But I, don't, I would have been an alcoholic under any conditions. When I was eight or nine and there was beer or wine in a glass around home, I'd snap up a gulp if nobody was looking. And when I was 12, I used to pick the lock on my aunt's liquor closet. And when I was 14, I got drunk for the first time. And it was as if a switch had turned, and I think it happens to any alcoholic you remember that all of your life, even when it won't work anymore, you go back and you figure, this time it might be different. And of course it never was. I came back to Oak Park where my mother was when I was 19, and I went into service from there, and I was boxing for a club on the west side of Chicago. I went into service to become a naval aviator. I was talking with Bob about this yesterday, who flew TBFs. <clears throat> but it was part of my act. If you don't know who you are, you have to invent somebody. 
and I had this act of the lover and the athlete and the sophisticated and the you know, it's amazing, with all my talents that nobody used to want to spend that much time with me. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't a service, and I learned how to fly. I got drunk every weekend when I was a cadet. When we got out, when we, when I got commissioned, I could get drunk every night. And I had a routine. I used to get drunk nine nights in a row, and then I would have to go to bed at 10 o'clock and sleep around the clock and finally stumble out and fly and start it all over again. But alcohol worked very well for me. I had a lot of great times with alcohol and a lot of great drinking friends, most of whom are dead at this time. Whenever we went to a new base, and I know Bob remembers this, they would give us a complete physical. And one of the tests was eight and a half by 11 sheets with red or green dots on them to see if you were colorblind. And if your vision was normal, you saw numbers in there. And if you were colorblind, you just saw this maze of dots. And we did this wherever we went. We'd get the red and green dot test. One night, a dive bomber pilot and I named Diz were out drinking. And there was a wave who came up to us. She had more freckles per square inch than anybody ever saw. And Diz said, I don't know where I saw you. You're page 12 in the colorblind book. <laughs> I had, a lot of, I had a lot of fun with drinking. Jung said that we drink alcohol as a substitute spiritual experience, and I think that might be true. But alcohol's freed me in ways that I was never free otherwise. And gradually, of course, it didn't work. I started to black out when I was 19. When I was 23, I was in a Navy hospital with pneumonia, which went into the DTs. I thought that was kind of unusual. I got drunk. I was in the hospital four weeks. I got drunk nine out of the last ten nights in the hospital. I don't learn very quickly. And I continued flying. I flew seaplanes that were catapulted off cruisers and battleships. You went from zero to 60 miles an hour in the space of about 40 feet. It wouldn't cure a hangover, but it really took your mind off of it for a little while. <laughs> And I continued to fly, and the, world came, the war came to an end, and I ended up at the Naval Air, Sta Air Station in Norfolk a month or two after the war was out, and they decided I should get separated from the service. After I'd been sober a while, I read of the alcoholics being these sensitive characters, and I remembered an experience I had which proved it to me. I'd gone out with some friends. They got me on a, a blind date, and in her honor, I got blind. And I was starting to have a little trouble with my stomach, and I would get up in the morning and take my gagging exercises. And as we were walking her to the door, I had to stop and go behind a bush and throw up. And I had to go behind a tree and throw up. And I was very hurt because she wouldn't kiss me goodnight. <laughs> but I went to the Great Lakes to get separated on December 8th, 1945. And I got out and I traveled for three days and three nights till I could get back to Oak Park where I was living about 50 miles away. And drinking was showing some signs of trouble. And on New Year's Eve in 45, I started out for Cincinnati, and I got drunk in Milwaukee for three days. And I had kind of a spiritual experience, perhaps the first one I ever had, because I ended up with what had to be the worst-looking woman in the Middle West. She was one of the Lee sisters. Her first name was Ugg. <laughs> She looked like a million dollars, and the only reason I say that is because I've never seen a million dollars, and she looked like something I never saw before. <laughs> she literally frightened me into six weeks of sobriety. <laughs> I, knew, I knew there was something wrong with my drinking, and I thought maybe I started to experiment. I read a lot of books on how to stay sober, and I read one by a psychiatrist in New York he said, we're alcoholics because we have too much pressure on the brain. You make a spinal tap, it relieves the pressure, and you're no longer an alcoholic. And I knew there was pressure on my brain because all my hair was flying out. <laughs> so I wrote him a letter and asked if anybody around Chicago could tap my spine. He said no, so I went back and bought another book. And I did read a lot of books. I still read a lot. The only thing is, they all tell you how you're supposed to be but none of them told me how to get from where I was to where I was supposed to be. Step one describes the problem. Step 12 describes the goal. And the 10 steps in between 
provide specific information how to go from the problem to the goal, which is a continuing spiritual experience. I have never found anything in my life that gives me this kind of practical direction, which is one of the reasons I stick around. That and the fact that nobody else will listen to me anywhere else. <laughs> You've probably heard about the lady whose husband died and she they'd been married for 30 years and she had him cremated and she brought up the urn home and spread the ashes out on the table. She mixed him up with some marijuana. She rolled him up in a cigarette and smoked him and said, that's the first time in 30 years he made her feel good. <laughs> the last two years I drank were absolute misery. You know, I, I never want to forget that. I remember exactly what this was like. And I tried various ways to stay sober. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew from my father's drinking that he was an alcoholic, and I knew what this did to people's lives. I knew the effect that it had on my mother and my brother and sister and me. But I always said, as we do with our cunning, baffling brilliance, I'm going to drink, but not like him. Or if I ever start to have trouble, I'll quit. And then I couldn't quit. And I decided in what was a, like, a lot of weird things happen. No fun. You know, I'm constantly losing my car. I'd wander around. I think there's nothing more beautiful than an alcoholic who has been reunited with his lost automobile. <laughs> I'd walk around and there it was. I'd say, my car. Cry a little bit and I'd get in it and drive off and run into something. <laughs> but I knew in January of 1947, I knew I was an alcoholic. And I knew that an alcoholic should not take one drink. And so this was very easy. I was an alcoholic. I wouldn't take one drink. And I stayed sober for three months. I've had a lot of trouble in my life trying to be smarter than I actually am, which didn't end by any means when I sobered up. But I stayed sober, and then in April of 1947, I went to a party, and I said, I just want to seven up and I put a shot of booze in there and I thought well I'll drink it and I'll get drunk tonight but I'll jump on the wagon tomorrow and I got drunk quite drunk and the next morning I couldn't find the wagon <laughs> and I chased it all around Chicago for till August of 1947 and I went out and I got drunk on a Friday night and I woke up Saturday morning and something had happened I quit lying I couldn't lie anymore about the state of my life I've gotten into trouble over and over and over in my life, drunk or sober, by dishonesty, lying, cheating, and stealing. And quitting drinking by no means stopped that with me. I've been sometimes a much worse person sober than I ever was drunk because people believe you and trust you when you're sober. And that's a great responsibility which I haven't always lived up to. So I got drunk in April of... 47 and in August of 47, I woke up on a Saturday morning. I've been sicker. I wasn't in trouble. I knew I really had to do something, and I had learned a lesson. The first lesson was that I was an alcoholic and couldn't take one drink. The second lesson, and equally important, was that on my own I could not stay away from the first drink. It was a Saturday morning. I called the AA office downtown, and I was 25 years old. I thought my life was over, and that part of it was. But I talked to a lady, and uh, she said, is this for you? I said, yes. And I said, I called up. I said, I'd like some information about your organization. Yes, she thought I was going to write an article for the FBI. She said, is this for you? I said, yes. And she said, are you home? I said, no. She said, well, go home, and somebody will call you. And right away, I had 3,300 places to go. Nobody had invited me any place for a couple of years. And she stopped me. She said, this means a lot to you, doesn't it? I said, absolutely. And I went home, and a man called me, and I went over to his house on this Saturday afternoon, and he was sober, I think, five years. And he told me what AA had done for him, and he took me to a meeting the next morning, a Sunday meeting on the west side of Chicago, at the Austin YMCA. And somebody talked. They had maybe 60, 70 people there, and people commented, 
And as far as I could tell, nothing happened, but something did happen because I haven't had a drink since. A number of people I had never met before in my life stretched out their hands and they said, how can we help? And you people have helped me every day of my life since, and I couldn't get by without your help. I've proved many, many times in and out of AA that I have a great capacity for stupidity. Fortunately, I have been fortunate that I never ran myself out of AA because I'm the only person who could throw myself out of AA. And I started going to meetings and really felt terrific for about five months and then I didn't feel so good and I've always had a lot more greed than I have had skills and I went into business out in Davenport, Iowa with some dishonest practices and got in a lot of trouble over a year. And I came back to Chicago and I was talking to some friends. I said, I think maybe I missed something in the program. I said, son, you kept such an open mind that the whole program just blew right through. <laughs> so I, I wrote a fourth step and I took a fifth step and I began to see what the program was about. And I started to make amends and then I worked on the construction. And I came back to Chicago about 1959 and during those years I was gone, they had started having conferences and banquets and things like that, and I saw that there was a clique that ran this. <clears throat> so I got my own clique and I started running things as best I could. I ran into a lot of people who did not understand God's will when I explained it to them. <clears throat> I ended up with a lot of really bad relationships sober, not because I was an alcoholic, but because sober, I can behave very badly, and that's up to today. So I ended up with a lot of bad relationships. I had tried to get together with my my father. He was still in uh, he was still in Georgia, and I used to call him up, and he never wanted to get together. I found out he was sober on his own, and I had 12 amends that I saw to make to the people I had pushed around sober. And I made those amends. Everything is connected to everything else. Nothing stands alone. I've if I make an amend over here, it'll help my life over here, even though I may not see the connection. I made those 12 amends, and a business deal, I had to talk at a business convention in Miami, so I went down there and stopped in this little town in South Georgia on the way back, and I went to see my father unannounced. Then I knocked on the door and made an amend to him, and then I told him who I was. I said, I'd like to come in and talk to you. And I went in and talked to him for maybe 25 minutes. And in March of 69, that was October of 68, March of 69, I went to see him again, unannounced, another 25-minute visit. And these were very, very painful visits. And I have no idea what I was reacting to. But those years growing up in South Georgia were very, very difficult in ways I have, and I don't know what they were. But what I discovered was after that second visit, I was home in Riverside having a quiet time, and it was as if a layer of my life had peeled away, somehow locked up in those relation, that relationship with my father. There was other information which I would have never seen had I not done that. There were another ten names that went on my eighth step. Two weeks after that second visit, he died, and I went to his funeral. Acutely aware that easy does not always do it. Sponsorship means that we help people to see these things and then encourage them to do it. And had I not been to see him at the time I did, I would have missed an opportunity, a tremendous opportunity for healing within myself. So that's the message that we try to carry in the group I belong to. And as I say, it's a working step group, not a talking step group, not a study group, not a philosophizing group. We don't hug, hold hands, or holler high. We work the 12 steps. Once we, we take step one, and we look at it in reference to always being powerless over alcohol and always having an unmanageable life except to the degree that we work the steps. And that's what happens when I try to sponsor somebody. Step two, we talk about truth equaling sanity. I had no belief in God when I came to AA. I was very grateful that nobody in AA argued about whose higher power was higher. <clears throat> they said, approach God on the basis of your own understanding, and that's what I have done, and it has changed through the years.
Step three, when I sponsor somebody, we take step three aloud together. That prayer on page 63, which I didn't see till I was sober quite a while. And then when it's time for step four, I help write an inventory using the big book in the 12 and 12, resentment, dishonesty, selfishness, self-pity, fear, the seven deadly sins, pride, lust, anger, envy, greed, sloth, gluttony, being thorough, precise, and specific in writing it, and always looking, when I do it, always looking where I'm at fault. Because if I look hard enough, I can always find that I'm the one that caused my own problems. Somebody else didn't. It all starts within me, and I continue to do that. I can remember when I was a kid, I was 12, and I couldn't make sense out of anything, and I thought, well, when I get to be 17, I'll understand life. And then I got to be 17, and I thought, when I'm 21, I'll understand life. And then I got to be 21, and I thought, I'm never going to understand life. <laughs> and the way I was going, I never would. But one of the things that Dr. Maurer and some other good psychiatrists and psychologists I got to know, I, I've done a lot of health and science articles. I'm a member of the National Association of Science Writers. In years past, I did a lot of articles on alcoholism and drug addiction. And what I found when talking to the sober drug addicts in the therapeutic communities like Daytop Village in New York and Gateway in Chicago, they had all been dishonest and irresponsible, but that preceded the drug use. They were honest and irresponsible first. And one of the things that was stressed in these therapeutic communities was that you've got to be honest and you've got to be responsible and you've got to be open. And that's one of the things that Hobart Maurer talked about, this need to be open, the transparent self. Because we're as sick as our secrets. If you want to stay sick, stay secret. And the openness, on the other hand, changes everything. And when I work with another person, I suggest that he, we take steps six and seven aloud, and then we write his eighth step, and I suggest that he lists everybody that he's ever harmed. When I was sober, those years, and I made that amend to my father, this was a tremendous change. My only regret is that I didn't do it many years sooner, and that was my fault. That's nobody else's fault but mine. In making amends, I've done things like write letters to people who were dead or who I couldn't find, go out to a grave and make an amend. But I have never gotten anything but good results from this kind of work with the 12 steps. And as I said earlier, the most dramatic changes I see come from steps four and five and steps eight and nine. I got from Hobart Maurer, I got the idea of swapping a fifth step. I don't try to function as a therapist or a guru, but simply a guy who has the same problems that this man has who's coming to me, and when we get done, we're even. And it really does work. I have seen this happen over and over and over with so many people from all over the country and Canada. Bernie, my friend over here, and Ray, Ray Kelly was talking about a friend of ours from the Chicago area, Dennis O'Brien from Glenview. And Glenn, Dennis was a great guy. Dennis unfortunately died of cancer seven years ago, but he used to get a new person and he would show him how to do an inventory. Then he'd say, come over to my office and we'll swap a fifth step. So this one guy came over and he was pretty new and Dennis went first and he got done. He said to the man, now it's your turn. He said, oh, he said, you need professional help. I'm leaving. <laughs> Dennis was working with one man, and he was explaining to him that if he would work the steps and help people, he'd get what he needed. The guy said, what if that isn't enough? Dennis was, he was funny to the end. He had a great sense of humor. He had chemotherapy, and he had a great head of hair, which always irritated me. But he lost all his hair with chemotherapy. In the first meeting back, he said, my name is Sinead O'Connor, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> but we do emphasize these kinds of things in the group. I emphasize them because I've seen what they have done in my own life and continue to do in my life. And what I, while I'm in the misnamed golden years, I think that in the continuing tenth step, and this is very different from a written fourth and fifth, I can look at things, uh, how am I spending my life? Do I really believe in God? If I do, then I'm going to use my life in a way that would indicate that. I'm going to use my strength and my time and my energy wisely. And I'm going to try to help people, and I'm going to be a responsible member of AA. 
and I'm going to be a responsible member of my community. I'm active in the community. Years ago, somebody told me I should start tithing because I didn't have any money. He said, that'll straighten out your finances. And I figured 10% of nothing isn't going to hurt me. <laughs> and I started tithing, and it does work. And it does work. It enables you to give money, and it do, it's not yours because it makes it easy on that basis. And I try to check on myself with step 10 daily, see if I'm getting enough sleep. I don't own a television set. Judy does, fortunately. I can go over and watch the fights. But I've worked for myself for years, and if I had a television set, I'd be sitting there watching John's other girlfriend or whatever it is they watch in the daytime. <laughs> I try to pray a fair amount every day. Don't encourage me. I don't have to be home till tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> but I think it's important to spend as much time each day in prayer and meditation as I possibly can. When I, as I say, when I was a, before AA, I was a kind of cowardly agnostic. When I felt good, I didn't believe in anything. One night I cracked up a plane down in Pensacola. I dropped it into the bay there, upside down. And while I was hanging on the side of it, it turned over and I was waiting for some people to get me. You never heard such fervent prayer in your whole life. <laughs> but I try to spend a fair amount of time each day in prayer and meditation. Now, I don't do much work anymore, so I spend a lot of time in meditation because I have the time. When I was sober five years, my life was a mess, and I started meditating an hour and a half a day, and I was working full-time at a job as a painter, totally inept painter, but they paid me. But I meditated every day an hour and a half, and it was from there that I started working up in Greenland. My whole financial picture and everything else changed in about 30 days, asking for nothing. I read a lot of books on how to use prayer to get your own, own way, but God becomes a kind of cosmic candy machine. You find the right lever of affirmations and positive thoughts and prayers, and you pull the lever, and he gives you what you want, which sometimes has turned out to be what I shouldn't have. But I ask for nothing. I use a phrase like, thy will be done, or God is love, or just a word, God or love. Bring my mind back to it again and again and again, and it takes me about 45 minutes before my mind really gets quiet. Is it worth it? Absolutely. I aim for two to three hours a day, and as I say, I don't work, so I've got a lot of time for that. Is it worth two or three hours a day? Absolutely. It's worth more than that. Meister Eckhart, who knew a lot about prayer, said that when I pray for something, I do not pray. When I pray for nothing, I really pray. And it took me a long time to figure out what Step 11 said, praying only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out and I need a lot of help figuring it out and remembering it and also carrying it out. The quantity is very, very important. The more I do, the better the quality becomes. I can't, I'm not in charge of the quality. Sometimes my mind wanders all over the place. I can do something about the quantity, but I can only do that if I recognize that this is important, perhaps the most important thing in my life. And that brings us to the 12th step and the message. And the message is simply that any alcoholic who does this kind of work will have a message that can help another alcoholic straighten out his life. And it's not just the message of somebody who doesn't drink anymore or a dried out drunk who grits his teeth to stay sober. It's a message of somebody who has experienced a way of life that is so good that we don't have to drown the emptiness and the frustration in alcoholism. I had a friend who was sober 20, 20 years, and he came up to see us 15 years ago from Indianapolis in terrible shape from untreated alcoholism. And oddly enough, he had been going to a step group, but they had been doing everything but working the steps. They talked a lot about him. But he was depressed and anxious and fearful, and his finances were shot and his wife was mad at him and he did the usual thing a bunch of fifth steps that he swapped with people over the weekend maybe eight or nine went back with a list of people he had harmed and he had a number of debts in there that he had never paid he talked about them all the time in the fifth steps but he never got around to paying them and when he started to pay these of course his whole life changed and got better 
I find that alcoholics are very sincere sometimes till it comes to paying back money. That makes them very nervous. But I think it's very important. As I say, I've done a lot of lying, stealing, and cheating sober. I was telling them at uh, dinner about five years ago, I did some fifth steps, and I remembered that there was a lady, a publisher, that I had done some articles for, and I had misled her on some of the sources. Now, misleading is a way of lying. <clears throat> That's what you can call it if you really want to. And I owed her some money because I had fooled her on what I had done. I owed her $1,600, I figured, and I called her up, and I said, I want to pay you the money. I lied to you, and I'm sorry. She said she didn't want the money. And I said, well, I really need to give it to you. And she said, I don't want it. So that day, before I could change my mind, I wrote out $1,600 worth of checks to charities. But I think that I have to do those kinds of things, and I think that's a big part of sponsorship, pointing out that being sober just doesn't straighten everything out. In our group on that eighth step, we never put our own name on the list or make amends to ourselves. I don't know how you do that. But we make amends to the people we've harmed, and we continue to do this. It's a very strong, it's a very vigorous group because of the continuing work on the steps. Because this releases a vitality for change. A new person comes in there and he shares that. And he starts to do these things because other people show him what to do and they help him do it. There are a lot of people that I've seen this happen to. The message that I understand today is summed up in the experience of a man that I knew for a number of years. He never got sober. And in January of 71, he sobered up again, and this time he came to our group. And he started to work the 12 steps, and he began to change. He had three boys. The youngest was eight, and he was in a class for retarded children because the father was a very badly behaved drunk, and the kid just couldn't learn. And as the father stayed sober that year and began to work the steps, the boy went from a class for retarded children to a regular class doing average work. And as the father continued to stay sober and changed, the boy got better and better. The boy graduated from high school when he was 18, and I had lunch with his father, and I said, how'd your boy do in high school? He said he made the honor roll every grade period but one. He was a varsity football player, and the father said, he wasn't retarded, I was retarded. And the father said, if all I had done is not drinking and hadn't worked the steps, none of these things would have happened. And that's the message I understand in the AA program, that if you and I work and rework these steps, we can carry this message to other people, and these changes will be reflected in the lives of everybody with whom we come in contact. And that's why I'm here, because without your help, I would forget it. Thank you very much.